Best Book Bits podcast brings you Cheyenne Sien, uh, the world's leading Amazon industry expert, founder of brain nutrition startup Accelerate Intelligence. He's also an award-winning business mogul, author, filmmaker, and inventor of Herbal Ecstasy, the neurotropic that sparked the 100% legal smart drug movement. Shane, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, totally. No worries. Now, for my audience that uh, don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about uh, your amazing story, where did it start, and, and how did you sort of come to where you are now? So I started actually immigrating to the United States from a little country called Iran. I was born in Iran, and by the time I was about five years old, we decided, hey, we're going to move to the United States for better opportunities, and there was a revolution in Iran. So we migrated to the United States by way of Germany, landed in Los Angeles, and realized pretty quickly that we were now officially second-class citizens in uh, probably one of the best countries in the world. Now, I was just a kid. Going through school was pretty rough. Grown up uh, during the wrong contract. Did that, and by the time I was about 15 years old, the area that I was growing up in had really picked up. My parents managed to buy a house. We were fairly poor. You know, my dad worked at a dry cleaners. He worked at a pizza shop. We didn't have very much money, but we always managed to somehow get by. And they managed to buy a house. Turns out that that neighborhood really, really up and came and, and became one of the most affluent neighborhoods. So I noticed all this wealth around me. I noticed all these people driving their Porsches and their Mercedes and living in their big houses and eating out at fancy places. And I didn't even know what a restaurant was. I, I mean, I, until I was 15, I remember hanging out with one of my friends whose dad was a, a very affluent doctor and him being like, Hey, my dad's out of town, but he gave me his card. Let's go eat. And I was like, okay. And we sat down at the restaurant and I remember looking at him going, wait. So I can order a hamburger and a pizza. Is this what you're telling me? Sounds like bullshit. And the guy's going to bring me both of those things. And then you're going to give him a card and that's it. So I was around that kind of wealth, but we never had that. We, we never ate out. All our clothes were secondhand. And I realized that I wanted Michael, a piece of that pie. I wanted to be successful. I wanted the great American story. So I, I remember asking my parents, hey, so what's the path to that? And my folks would say, you know, look at Mr. Mordecai down the street. This man, he has Mercedes. He has a wife. I was like, okay, well, what's he do? He's a doctor. I said, oh, so he's a doctor. Okay, great. Let me do that. Okay, well, what's the path to that? Well, you go to school for eight years, 10 years, then you come out, then the bank gives you a loan. I was like, whoa, it's a 10-year process, at least. And then I looked at Mr. Mordecai down the street, and I was like, man, that guy wakes up at 5 a.m. He gets home at like 8 p.m. He's fat. He's bald. He doesn't look healthy. He doesn't look happy. The bank owns his house. The bank owns his car. The bank probably owns his wife, too. She's way younger than he is. And none of this looks good to me. I, I don't think I want this. I want that guy's life over there who's driving the Porsche. He's got like the beautiful blonde sitting next to him. And they're, you know, driving down the street, whatever that guy did. So in order to find that path, I decided, hey, 15 years old, I'm good. I'm going to leave home, cut all my ties, 
left home, left school, hadn't even finished high school yet, no college degree, no money. And I managed to make things work. I slept in abandoned buildings that were under construction in those times in Los Angeles. So I wouldn't say abandoned, but buildings that were under construction and the backseat of a car. And I, I would have read all the old timey self-help books. I know you're a, you're a book guy. So I would have read books like think and grow rich and the greatest salesman by Augmentino. I discovered Tony Robbins, love Tony Robbins. I discovered this other writer called Stuart Wilde who had been writing on self-help and personal development. And I started reading a lot of Stuart's work. Stuart lived in Australia for a while. So you might know his work. And later I became friends with him and you know, I thought, man, there's going to be a way for me to make money. And at that same time, I managed to get myself a mentor. I was hanging around the, there was a hot dog stand and a community college. And I would hang out at the hot dog stand because I get free relish and ketchup and you could live off that stuff. And the community college also sometimes gave like a little bit of food and tea and whatever events they had. So I would just show up there just to eat or hang out. And I met this guy who became a mentor for me. And I got involved in the electronic music scene, Michael, the rave scene that was happening at the time. Now, here's the interesting part about this whole thing. And I write about it in my book, Billion, by the way, how I became king of the throwbook cult. So I'm hanging out at these raves, these clubs, these underground parties. And I realized fairly quickly that I could sneak in or somehow persuade them to let me in. And then I just fall asleep behind the speakers in front of the speakers, very loud behind the speakers, very quiet, very warm. And you could just fall asleep. I would wake up in the morning and the club would still be going on. I'd sneak out the front door. Everything would be great. Now at this time, a particular drug had been taking over the party scene, a drug called MDMA, methyl dioxymethamphetamine, ecstasy. Now they call it Molly, or there's a million different names that they can call it. However, this drug was fairly difficult to synthesize and produce. It wasn't like the other drugs. And most of it was coming from Europe. And there was a crackdown. They shut down the dealers bringing and synthesizing this drug from Holland, from the UK into the United States. So what was the most popular party drug at the time had now dried up. And... I remember thinking to myself, man, if I could sell this stuff, if I could find a way, I would be doing really well. Like I can make a lot of money. Look at the drug dealers in the clubs. The people who throw the clubs don't make the money. The people who are going to the clubs don't make the money. The DJs, nobody appreciates them. They're just playing somebody else's music. People are like no respect for that back in those days, as far as financially compensating them for that. So the people who now DJs make a lot back then, they didn't. So the people who were making the money were the drug dealers. And I thought, man, I want to do that. But then I looked back to my adolescence coming from Iran. I remember my first criminal enterprise as an adolescent in, in school, in grade school. Me and some other kids who were just as disowned as I was, um, unaccepted at school. We were a band of misfits, and we would walk into liquor stores. And one of them was shorter, a little Greek kid. He was shorter than the rest of us. We called him Cal. And he would walk into the uh, li liquor store and he would steal the nudie magazines, the Playboys, the penthouse magazines, the hustlers. He would steal the little tiny bottles of liquor and he'd stuff them all in his jacket and his pants. We would create a diversion. He would run out the, the front door so nobody suspected anything. And then we would sell this contraband in school. And we developed quite a business except for the fact, Michael, 
we were really bad fucking criminals. We would always get caught 100% of the time. I mean, my ass was red from how many times my folks hit me in the butt with a shoe or a belt or something for just being a really shit of a kid in, in those days. So I, I thought to myself, looking back, my teenage self, looking back to my adolescent self, you know, Shaheen, you're really fucking bad at crime, dude. Do not do crime. Like, it didn't work out for you in, in your adolescence. It's probably not a great thing for you to do at this stage in your career. And I listened. I thought to myself, that's a really good point. I am not going to do crime. But what if, and nobody had told me it was impossible, or maybe everybody told me it was impossible, but I didn't listen. I could create a version of this ecstasy, this, this panacea, this amazing drug, this soma that people are taking that's legal, that's natural, that's all herbal, that we could sell and make a huge amount of profit on. So I went about the process of doing that. Nobody told me that it was impossible or I didn't listen to people. I managed to get myself a girlfriend. Amazing fact that I was living off relish and ketchup and I got a girlfriend. I managed to convince her to let me cook it up in her kitchen while her father was out. So I would sneak into the house. We'd making this stuff up. I'd have her be my assistant. I didn't have the money to buy a machine to put it in the capsule. So we'd have to roll these herbs into a little ball. And one day we got a formula that worked, that worked really fucking well. And it felt like little like ecstasy. Now I wouldn't know because I had never tried ecstasy. I hadn't done any drugs. I didn't do any drugs for most of those years, but everybody who we gave it to all the characters that were around in those days loved it and they felt it was like ecstasy. So I was like, okay, winner, winner, chicken dinner. What are we going to do now? I got to find a place to sell it. Distribution. Be at the right place at the right time, Michael. So I walked into the first club that I knew of, late night rave, walked up to the biggest drug dealer. Now you have to imagine the scene, electronic music playing, thousands, tens of thousands of people dancing up and down. And a few of these drug dealers hanging out on the periphery. Maybe it was a broken into warehouse because most of those warehouses in those days were breaking. So people would break in. That one guy would climb the pole and get the power and plug it in. Another guy would, you know, bring, you know, whatever the other equipment was. And that's how those parties happened in those days. And I walked up to the guy, looked him in the face and said, hey, man, you should sell my stuff. He said, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, I'm going to kick your ass. Are you a cop? Are you a cop? Are you wearing a wire? Like he was looking at me. And I was like, no, no, no. I, do I look like a cop? I'm not a cop. I'm like, no, I just, I've got this stuff and you should sell it. And it's great because it's just like ecstasy and people are going to take it. He's like, is it ecstasy? I said, no. He said, fuck off, kid. Said, okay. And it was in that moment, in that instant that I knew that once again, I would need to burn my ships and go all in. I needed to convince this drug dealer, this criminal, this probably dude that's done terrible things to people that I would have to convince him to sell my product in the club. Mind you again, right place at the right time. So I explained to him, I said, Hey man, you know, I know you're out of inventory. You have nothing to sell. People are going to come up to you. They're going to ask you for stuff. You're going to have nothing to sell them. You're going to lose customers. Why not at least give it a shot? And in that moment, two people walked up to him and he had a moment of hesitation, but he looked at me in the eyes and he saw that I was 100% dedicated to making that sale with him. I was not going to let this guy go. 
And he motioned to me to hand him the bag. I had a backpack full of pills. I handed him the whole backpack. And he said, come back in a couple hours. He handed some pills to the people who walked up. He grabbed the cash, put it in his pocket. I came back a couple hours later. At this point, I'm sweating. I'm like, this guy's going to fucking kill me. This was the worst idea ever of my life. I've had a good life up until this point. I'm going to have to fucking go home. All the worst things came into my mind. And as I walked up to him, I noticed, wait a second. People don't look angry. People in the club look really happy. And I looked at him and I, I couldn't fucking tell. You know, he had tattoos on his face and his neck. And I know that's a common thing nowadays. Everybody has it. I think probably grade school kids have that now. But back then in the 90s, nobody fucking had tattoos on their face. So this was a very scary looking dude with a couple expressions, like in his entire expression portfolio. And I think both of them were like, I'm going to kill you. So he looked at me. And I'm there. Finally, sweat starts dripping from my head. There's a moment of silence, and he looks at me, and he goes, Kid, when can you get me more? And that was it. He was hooked. And they all were. And it went from one guy to 100 guys to 1,000 guys. And we legitimized the whole business very quickly. We went to Tower Records, Warehouse Records, Urban Outfitters, GNC, 7-Eleven. All the top retail outlets started getting it. We were selling it day after day. We were making millions and then hundreds of millions of dollars. Mind you, I'm a teenage kid. I was sleeping behind the speakers a few months before, and now we're making all this money. And then I never slept. Then I would sleep one, two hours, maybe I would wake up, I would eat something, and then I'd go straight into the office, assuming I didn't fall asleep on the office floor. And I remember one morning, Michael, I had walked into my office, and everybody was pale-faced, very scared. And I was like, okay, well, it's been a good run. What the fuck's happened? I don't know what's going on. Why is everybody looking at me like this? I walked up to my secretary. We had secretaries in those days. This is pre-internet. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Shaheen, the news just broke. You've made over a billion dollars. You've broken the billion dollar mark. CNN wants to interview you. MTV wants to have you on. Sam Donaldson from Nightline is on his way over in a limousine. The producers are already here. Newsweek is sending writers right now. Details Magazine wants to do a cover feature with you and Chris Cornell from the band Soundgarden. And I remember having a panicked moment, a moment of self-doubt, not for any other reason that I didn't know how much a fucking billion dollars worth of money was. Not that I didn't understand metaphorically how much a billion dollars was. Dude, I had no idea what that meant, literally. And everybody calmed me down. This was pre-internet. But we had broken a billion dollars in revenue in a startup pre-internet, pre-COVID, pre-cell phones, pre-social media, pre-all the stuff as a near teenage kid. And it was insane. And from there, we went on a wild ride. And I write about it in the book. There's a crazy story where the mob tried to take over the company. The Japanese mafia tried to take over the company. We had run-ins with the law. We had run-ins with the FDA. All the different three-letter organizations came after us. And I was just a kid just trying to chase this dream. No, I was going to say, how did, you, how did you scale that business from something that started just sort of entrepreneurial in a kitchen to making a billion dollars that seems like a wild ride and a, a wild jump for someone with not too much experience of the business world how did you how did you scale it what, what was the process on that i didn't scale it it scaled me 
like I said, it was pretty easy. We basically went through, first and foremost, the drug distribution route. You had all these guys standing around used to making millions of dollars, who are now, or at least tens of thousands of dollars, now making nothing because they didn't have drugs. I was at the right place at the right time. I hired them all, and then I legitimized them all. They all stopped selling drugs and started selling my pills. They bought stores. They bought businesses. They bought territories, started distributing it everywhere, Miami, Paris. Tokyo, you name it. They started selling my pills everywhere. And I was legitimizing all these people, making all these new millionaires selling my products. And then from there, retails picked up, brick and mortar picked up. And we started selling. We started selling in clubs. We started selling in, legitimately selling in clubs, not just through drug dealers. And then we started touring with big shows. Lollapalooza was happening at that time. We were selling a Lollapalooza. We were selling at concerts and festivals. And, and everywhere you could go, we, we would do a million dollars a day at the Lollapalooza Music Festival with the Beastie Boys and Porno for Pyros and all those bands playing. We were a fixture of the electronic music scene and a fixture of the alternative music scene that was popping at that time. And the company grew faster and faster. And buddy, we were printing money in those days. We were making those pills for 25 cents and selling them for $20. And as quickly as we could produce them, we were selling them all day, every day. What's happening with herbal ecstasy now? Were the pills called herbal ecstasy? What were the what were the pills called? Yeah, the pills were called herbal ecstasy. We've since, uh, you know, I, I I managed to sell the company, sell some of the assets, and we've recently captured some of them back. We've been using some of the the you know the formulas and the products and the and the names, but it's you know it's it's something that we will be relaunching again in some time. But right now, you know, it's 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 a shadow of what it was back in the nineties. I wanna I wanna talk about and segue into one of your famous inventions. Uh, you're a man of many talents. Um, talk to me about how you started vaping and the industry vape. Talk to me about that. Sure. When I exited the herbal ecstasy company, I started thinking to myself, hey, you know what? I need to solve a bigger problem. And in that time, the bigger problem was smoking. I was trying to solve the problem of smoking. And I thought to myself, hey, people have been smoking for since the dawn of time. People have been smoking since the dawn of time. And smoking is a process by which you ignite a herbal substance and you get the active elements, the alkaloids, whatever it is, nicotine, cannabinoids, whatever that stuff is that you're trying to get out of it. But you're burning it and creating smoke, tar, and carbon monoxide, the three carcinogenic elements that come with smoking. Surely, guys, it's been since the dawn of time. We can fly now. We can go to the moon. There's a lot of great technology, and we haven't figured this basic human necessity out. Let me see if I could solve that. And so I started researching and I figured that what if you could heat up a plant substance to the point where it can release its active elements, but not to the point where you burn it and get smoke, tar, and carbon monoxide. Is this possible? Turns out the temperature where you burn something is like 1200 degrees. So when you hit a lighter to something and you light it, it's 1200 degrees and you're burning it, but to get just the cannabinoids or which are the active elements in, in cannabis or THC, uh, 
or to get uh, nicotine or any of the elements, actually any plant, lavender, chamomile, whatever it is that you're using in a vaporizer, you only need to heat it up to 300 to 400 degrees tops in order to get those active elements out. And I thought, well, let's create a device that does that. So we created the first vape and it was about this big and looked like a ketchup bottle, the first digital vape. And it was this big, it had a little LCD screen. And then we got it down to something that was smaller, looked a little bit more like a, one of those old time CD players. You ever see one of those things? I know you're a young guy, but all right, like maybe a Walkman kind of thing. And then we got it down to the size of a cigar. And then we got it down to closer to what people wanted, which was closer to the size of a cigarette, maybe a large cigarette. And that's about as far as I took that company. That company went public. I exited that company sometime around 2006. And that led to the proliferation of vaporization. I patented a lot of the technology in that field. I wrote the book on vaporization. I think it was the first book ever on vaporization. And now what you get with vaporizers, which is really interesting, or what they call vapes, is people figured out that people want convenience more than anything. They want a tiny, tiny device that replicates the feeling of smoking a cigarette. So the cost of that is that you can't take a solid substance and heat it up and have that equipment that heats that solid substance up in a, in a super tiny device. Why? Because heat is expensive as far as energy to produce. So instead what they did is they solved that problem by putting the, the, plant material and the active element, just the active extract of what you need, the nicotine or the THC or the cannabinoids in a liquid that volatizes very easily. So then you don't need a lot of heat. You could use tiny batteries and then it could look like a cigarette. So people feel like they're putting a cigarette in their mouth and it's much more convenient. The problem with that whole equation is that the liquids that they're using were not intended to be taken in through the lungs. So we don't have studies on those liquids. Could they be more harmful than smoking? Possibly. Could they be safer than smoking? Possibly. Are there different nuances and variations of those liquids that have not been tested? Absolutely. And that's the problem that people have now with vapes is that you have some people making Chinese made really crap liquid that they're using to volatize these active elements that are causing all kinds of health conditions. And then you have other people that have higher quality liquids that they're using that may not have the same health conditions. Ultimately though, I truly feel as, as one of the pioneers of this technology, if not the pioneer of this technology, that really the safest way, the safest bet for anybody to do it is to go with the vaporization technology that I designed back in the day, which you're just using the whole herb. And if you're using the whole herb or herb, as we say here, you don't have any of that liquid to contend with. So you don't fall prey to any of the side effects that may come with long-term use of all this liquid that they use in these smaller vapes. If you could handle the inconvenience of having a slightly larger device. Well, yeah, that's a, an amazing invention. And I can't believe you've gone from one success to the other. Um, what did you do after you invented the vape? When did Accelerate uh, Intelligence, Accelerated Intelligence, the company you founded, come aboard? Was that after that or what was what was in the middle there? 
Yeah. Uh, just after the vape thing, I got out of that. I started to think to myself, man, you know, I, I got a family, I got a kid and I'm not getting as much sleep as I, I need to. And having another startup is very time consuming. I need to be a little bit sharper, sharper than I was when I was in my twenties. So I invented this pill, this product called Accelerol. It's still available on Amazon. People can get it. I think it's the best uh, brain pill out there on the market. Um, and I was looking for a way to sell it. And this was back in the day, Michael, where you could get Jeff Bezos on the phone if you absolutely wanted to. Bezos would return your emails. Jeff at Amazon.com was a secret, not-so-secret email that we all had. So if you want to get Jeff, you can reach out to him there and get him. Back in those days, not anymore. And we heard through the grapevine that Jeff Bezos had opened up the Amazon platform to third-party sellers. People like you and me could go on there and sell anything, even stuff that's not books. Amazing. So I decided, hey, you know what? Let me give this a shot. What do I got to lose? Now, mind you, Accelerol was expensive in those days. Now you can get it for like 40 bucks a bottle. But in those days, you could get it for maybe $100, $120 a bottle. So it was a lot more expensive back then. And I remember putting it on, going to sleep, waking up the next morning and doing a double take on my computer going, what's going on? Turns out we had sold thousands of units of this product. And I stopped everything that I was doing. And I thought to myself, this is the next big thing. I am going to put all my eggs in the Jeff Bezos basket. And I researched Jeff Bezos. I looked into him, found out that he was not just this little nerdy Silicon Valley guy. He was a genius. He was a guy who had worked for one of the biggest firms in Wall Street, D.H. Hutton. He was experienced in finding cheap money from Wall Street and bringing it into Silicon Valley. And he was determined to make this company the largest e-commerce player in the world. To this day, I think that holds true. And I thought to myself, I'm going to learn how to master the way you sell on Amazon. How do we gain mastery in this area? And that's what we did. We put in the 10,000 hours and focused. I hired a staff. And all we did for all these years is learn how to tell the story on Amazon, how to get people to buy our products on Amazon. What a lot of people don't know is that when you buy something on Amazon, that you may be buying it from Amazon or you may be buying it from a third-party seller like me or one of my students. So we started selling products, everything from kitchen goods to home goods to uh, supplements to teas. We're one of the largest tea sellers on Amazon and we began to realize we're really fucking good at this. I mean, I'm really bad at a lot of shit, but I was really fucking good at this, still am. And people started sending us companies, Fortune 50s, Fortune 500s. Hey man, this is complete disruptive industry. Can you, sh can you do this for us? And we would do it for them. And eventually friends of mine and people I knew started coming to me, Michael, and saying, Hey, Shaheen, can you show us how to do this? And I said, yeah, but we're fucking expensive, man. You'll never be able to afford us. And they're like, how much do you charge? And I said, well, you know, we charge 55 K a month. It's like, yeah, of course, you know, individual isn't going to be able to afford that. So I developed a course. I was like, you know what? If I can take out my staff and my uh, team and have people who've got um, conviction, grit, and stick to to do the work themselves, I can teach it. 
So I invented Amazon Mastery. And Amazon Mastery, I think to this day, is one of the finest courses out there. And I'll tell you what, if it's okay with you, Michael, for your listeners, I do have a one-hour course that tells you everything, how to start an Amazon company, how to find that perfect product, how to get reviews, how to get ranked, how to sell that Amazon product from anywhere in the world. I don't care if you're in Australia. I've got students in South Africa. I've got students in the U.S. It doesn't matter where you're at, but you can start an Amazon business and sell your product. Um, that course is normally 200 bucks for anybody who listens to best book bits. If you use that code and reach out to us, I will give it for free. Absolutely no obligation, 100% for free. That is the only course you need to sell on Amazon. As far as I know, it's the only free one out there. And I think if I can empower people now to do what I do, to build businesses on the Amazon platform where you can create this predictable recurring revenue, I think it's one of the best things because then you don't have to sell your fucking time. That's my goal. I want to get as many people this year. My goal is to get a thousand more people not selling their fucking hours, to spend more time with their families, to spend more time with their kids, to enjoy life. And while they're doing it, to create predictable recurring revenue. And that's, that's my, that's my you know, mission in life now. I've created my companies. I've made millions of dollars, arguably a billion dollars with the first company. And I'm focused now on trying to inspire people in a real way to reach that level of success where they have the ultimate luxury. What do you think the ultimate luxury is, Michael? Oh, being in charge of your own time and living the life of that you want to live. Yeah, that, that would be the ultimate luxury. Exactly right, man. Time. Time is a new luxury. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, like the first example I made. If you don't control your time, you are not a free person. I don't know anybody who doesn't control their time who's not happy. And this is all at the end of the day about how do we become more fulfilled? How do we become happier? And money has to be a big part of that. I, oftentimes, a mentor of mine would say the guy that said money is the root of all evil didn't fucking have any. And the guy that said you can't buy happiness didn't know where to shop. So where did, um, I want to segue a little bit. We're going to get into your book in a, in a minute, but victory films, a, a documentary film production company. Um, that's cool. I'm into documentaries myself. What, how did that start? And what's, what's that all about? I spent a lot of time hanging out with native people, indigenous people, um, researching their cultures. And part of my philanthropic work has revolved around that. So, um, sometime around 2005, 2006, I decided to make a movie. Um, and that's what the film production company is. It was a pretty cool, uh, excursion and, and much more based out of kind of my philanthropic desire to help support indigenous cultures and their medicines and kind of bring, bring that to light. Yeah. Got it. Um, and what was the story behind the book? Was it, uh, something you had to get on paper and get out of your head and, and share with the world? Where did, where did the idea of, uh, writing, writing the book, uh, billions come about? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we actually just got a film deal. I can't say with which studio, but the film is going to be a, a very big deal coming out. So we've got a major company that's representing the film, which I'm very excited about. I think that's all I could say about it now. And the book um, came out of that. So the book, you know, came out of the desire to share the story with the world. And the book is, is I think, really cool because the way that it's written, it is a combination of narrative, 
my story as far as an autobiography goes, telling the crazy story of verbal ecstasy, but also the lessons that I learned from it and how you can take those lessons and apply them to whatever it is that you're doing and achieve real success. And I've got people who I've, I've mentioned in this book, people like Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, Keith Ferrazzi, the guy who wrote Never Eat Alone. My, um, the guy who wrote the forward to the book uh, is Chris Voss, the FBI negotiator, wrote Never Split the Difference. And uh, Jay Samet of Disrupt You, Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor, Bart Baggett author of success secrets of the rich and happy. So we've got a lot of great people who helped me, uh, make this book a reality. And I'm, I'm very excited about that and about sharing it. And again, you know, my goal is to just impact as many people as I can with my story and to try to inspire people to reach the level of success that I have. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. And as you said, it's a combination of a, a memoir with um, a lot of lessons that you learned as well. And a, a couple of bits that I took out of the book and one little section, which was called uh, Knowledge, Courage, Action. Do you want to expand on a little bit on that? Knowledge, Courage, Action. What, what do you mean by that? Sure. That's something for my good friend, Wayne Boss, who's actually an Aussie. So he's in your part of the world. Wayne's an amazing guy because he's expert at finding distressed companies and taking them and 10xing their value and then getting them sold for 10 times, sometimes 20 times what those companies were or valued at originally. And Wayne always talks about the three things, knowledge, courage, action. When we embark on a new adventure, a new lesson, a new part of our journey, the first thing that we always need even to solve a problem is knowledge. We need information. So if I told you, Michael, let's go jump out of a plane, you'd be like, Shaheen, you're off your fucking rocker. What do you mean? Right? You can die doing that. But if you and me had taken a month-long course, we know how the parachutes work, we know the safety, we know the plane, we know the instructor, we know all that stuff, we've become experts at parachuting. And I came to you and I said, hey, Michael, let's go jump. Weather's good. You'd say, fuck yeah, Shaheen. Let me just put this podcasting stuff down. Let me put this book, good book that I'm reading down. Let's go. Why? Because you have the knowledge. And what's the knowledge give you? Gives you the courage, the second step of the process. Courage is required. You need to take risks. The amount of success that you have in life is going to be commensurate with the risk that you take. But make no mistake, risk has to be intelligent risk. So now we've got the knowledge and the courage. And the final thing that nothing happens without is action. Once you have the courage, you can now step forth and take action on your journey. And that's knowledge, courage, action. It's a three-step process. I talk about it in detail in the book and how you can use that to achieve success. And for anybody who wants to, I do have the first chapter of the book for free on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, anywhere you go. And it's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. Yeah, it's an awesome title, awesome cover as well, and an amazing story. Um, another good bit I, I took from the book, and, and you talk about the, the journal entry, uh, reality distortion field. Um, do you want to touch on that? I really enjoy that you sort of break it down on what it is, why it's important, and um, how to win. Uh, what's the idea behind the reality distortion field? Yeah. So Walter Isaacson, in his book about Steve Jobs, talked about a special quality that Steve Jobs had. Steve Jobs would 
walk into a room, much like my friend Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese's, who was actually one of the first people to hire Steve Jobs. And the idea of Apple was allegedly ideated in Nolan's workshop while Steve was working for Nolan. But Steve Jobs, in his later years, would walk into a room, and he'd look at the room full of engineers, and he'd say, okay, guys, I want you to make a phone. Mind you, technology was not where it is now. He'd say, I want to get a phone, and I want this phone to have no buttons. In those days, all phones had buttons. The engineers look at him and they go, okay, a phone with zero buttons. Interesting. All right, we could probably figure that out. You know, we're thinking second quarter, third quarter of next year. He'd say, very funny. My presentation is in 72 hours. Make it work. And he would leave. And all these people in that room who formerly thought that this was two, three years away, thought that it wouldn't even be possible in two or three years, all of a sudden were making plans and trying to figure out how to make this happen by his presentation on next Wednesday. And it always happened. He always made it work. Why? Because when you have that unflinching conviction for what you believe in, and nobody is going to tell you that you can't do it, just like me staring in the eyes of that drug dealer going, hey, man, you are going to be selling my pills. I don't care what everybody says is impossible or even making those pills, creating something that's legal and natural. When you have that unflinching conviction, you create a reality distortion field. And one of my favorite quotes, and I, I think you might enjoy this as well, is the person who believes it can't be done should not interrupt the person doing it. Yeah, it's a fantastic quote. Uh, totally agree. Get out of it. You got to stop thinking about people that say it can't be done and just get into your own lane and, and put the blinkers on and put the headphones on and stop listening to the noise outside of you. Yeah, great quote. Yeah, totally right. Yeah. Yeah, with the, with the book. So it's it's an amazing book. Is there any other bits you want to talk about through that? But that, there were sort of my two takeaways of that, the knowledge, courage, action, and then the journal of um, reality distortion. But you've got a lot of great stories in there as well. But is, is there anything I sort of missed that you want to talk about from the book? No, I love that, man. Um, did you read the whole book? Okay. No, no, no. I just sort of skimmed through it uh, now, but I, I will read it and, and do a summary of it. Um, who's the person on the cover with all the long hair? That's me, man. Back in the day, I had long hair, and that's a big photo shoot by one of the world's most famous photographers, this guy, David LaChapelle, who Details Magazine hired to come out and shoot me. And that's where that picture comes from. That was a very accurate depiction of me in those days. Yeah, well, yeah, fantastic cover. Um, sort of before we wrap up, uh, I'd like to ask you sort of a, a couple of questions. Um, one of them is about, I know you've talked about Amazon, um, you talked about your story. Um, corporate culture's dead. Is, you know, is it every entrepreneur for himself? So what's your sort of take on the current environment uh, in terms of entrepreneurship with, with, with corporate culture as well? I think corporate culture definitely is not dead. I think the way that things were done has changed, especially with COVID. Of course, people have moved much more to working from home, but I think it's going to come back. I think we've learned that we can have a mix of working from home and working from an office. And working from an office might be better for team building and different types of businesses, but some businesses we've learned can be handled very well at home. And if you send people home, they're not just going to be complete fucktards and like, 
you know, just fucking around all day. We do like to work. Humans like to work. We like to be productive. And if you give people an opportunity to have meaningful jobs, to do meaningful work that contributes, people will do that. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I was watching this documentary about these people in, uh, I think it's like Greece, and it's the largest population of centenarians on this Greek island. And you look at the old people and the guy's like 110 years old and he's fucking climbing the mountain. He's like milking the sheep and picking the olives and coming back to the village. And when it's dinner time, he sits with the whole family and they're all eating the olives. And you're like, fuck, man, like, how do these people live that long? It's because they're not useless. They're contributing to society in a very big way. And they continue to live because they're giving a meaningful contribution. And I feel like the way corporate culture went wrong is that some people got categorized as less meaningful than others. And the work that was handed to them was lesser than who they were. And now with working at home, I think that dynamic has changed. And especially with people who are entrepreneurs who decide, hey, I don't want to sell my hours forever and they're going to start an Amazon business. They're going to take an Amazon course. They're going to go out there and they're going to create products that continue to impact people's lives and continue to make money without having to work on anybody else's time. So I spend a lot of my time traveling the world with my family, happily married, beautiful wife, beautiful kid. And we travel all over the world often. And wherever we're working from, be it on a yacht or be it on a beautiful beach in Jamaica, in Mexico, in the in Mayan Riviera, wherever we are, we're making money because somebody is buying our products on Amazon. And it's an amazing lifestyle. And I encourage more people to get interested and involved in building these e-commerce businesses because that's really, I think, the way forward, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very smart. Um a couple last questions before we wrap up. Here's a bit of an oddball question I asked all my audience. If you were to host a dinner party with three famous people from the past, uh, who would they be and what would you serve them? Wow. Okay, anybody dead or alive, right? Dead or alive. It, it, could, be, it, it could be anyone. All right, so I'll go Genghis Khan, amazing strategist, military guy. I'll go uh, Ragnar Lofbrook, the great Viking leader. So we've got Ragnar, we've got Genghis Khan, and then, uh, yeah, let's, let's throw Steve Jobs in there. That'll be interesting. That'll be an interesting dinner party. <laughs> Genghis Khan, uh, Ragnar Lothbrook, and Steve Jobs. No, wait, can I take Steve Jobs back? Can I take Steve Jobs back? Yeah, of course you can. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go Alan Watts. I'm going to go Alan Watts. Alan Watts, okay. Alan Watts. Yeah, Geng yeah, Genghis Khan, Ragnar, and Alan Watts. That that would definitely be the best party ever. And for people that don't know who Alan Watts is, who who's that to you? Oh my God, Alan Watts is the single most important individual for bringing Zen philosophy from the East to the West. And you can watch his videos, listen to his talks online. There's an organization I think that his children started. And, you know, he's impacted my life as much as any other writer. And I think he can impact your, your life as well. Just a, a, a brilliant philosopher for our time. Studied him uh, many years ago. I loved how he used to sit on a riverboat um, and, yeah, just give lectures from his uh, little riverboat. An amazing sort of amazing guy. Uh, what would you serve him? Would you take him out for dinner or would you, would you have a dinner party at home? 
Dude, with that crowd, meat. It'd be a feast. We would eat nose to tail. We would bring we bring animals. We'd eat all the delicious parts of the animals, and you know maybe a couple veggies. Now, uh, where can people sort of connect with you online, and what, where's the sort of best place where they they can purchase your book as well, and that would probably be Amazon. Yeah, thanks for asking. So my book Billion: How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult is available. You can get that on. Audible, we got the audiobook coming out soon, but you can get the actual book on Amazon, you can get it on Kindle, you can get anywhere books are available. You can get the first chapter for free on Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere where podcasts are available. Just look for the podcast, see if you like the first chapter. Um, I think it's pretty epic. As far as me, we also have a podcast, Michael, called Hack and Grow Rich, where we talk about secrets of hacking wealth and success. And for that, you can just join us on Hack and Grow Rich on YouTube or subscribe and like us. We really need more listeners and viewers, and we've got amazing guests on, people like Chris Voss, the FBI negotiator, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, uh, Jay Samet. Future Proofing You, we just interviewed Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor, author of The Power of When and his new book, Energize. So please check out Hack and Grow Rich. And for any of you guys who are interested in making some serious fucking money and selling on the Amazon platform, let me give you my course for free, $0. I can't beat that offer. It's a one-hour course. It's all you need. You can start selling on Amazon tomorrow. Go to fbasellercourse.com or go to shaheenshayan.com and click on course. All right. Appreciate it, man. No worries at all. And what's the last message you, you want to leave my audience? Yeah, look, find, find a mentor. Find a mastermind group. Get involved. Start a course. Learn about something. you got to acquire that knowledge. Look, if you don't know where to go, email me. I answer every email directly. I wish I was as rich as Jeff Bezos, but maybe I'm as rich as Jeff Bezos many, many years ago, I'm hoping, but I'll still answer your email. So reach out to me. Let me see if I can direct you. I'll give you my email. This is my private email. I answer every single email directly myself. And by the way, Michael, I get to email zero every day. I'm very proud of that. Thanks to David Allen of, um, of GTD, getting things done. But email me, guys, darkzess at gmail.com, D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. Make sure to mention you heard me on Michael's podcast, Best Book Bits, and we can set up a time. If I can help direct you in any way, I am at your service. Perfect. Well, uh, I appreciate you being on the Best Book Bits podcast. An amazing story for my audience. Go out, purchase this man's book, read it. It's an amazing tale. And uh, yeah, th what a what a story in history. And I look forward to uh, many, more, many, many cool stuff coming from yourself in the future. Thank you for being on the podcast. Have an amazing day. Uh, take care. Bye-bye now. Honored to be on, man. Thank you so much, Michael. No problem. Thanks, Shane.